Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Renaissance. It's great to see you guys out here uh, this morning. And uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here. I usually hang out up front uh, afterwards. And so if you got a couple of minutes, coming up and say hi, introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself. And I'd love to just chat with you for a couple of minutes and uh, find out a little bit more, more about you and answer any questions that you may have about Renaissance. So one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's full of stories of real life people, people like us. Yes, they lived, you know, two, 3,000 years ago, depending on, on which particular stories you're talking about, but you could transplant them from their situation to ours, and it wouldn't be a whole lot different. Or we could go back, if we could get in a time machine and live two, 3,000 years ago, we'd find ourselves in situations then that are similar to the situations that we find now. And I also love that the Bible doesn't whitewash those stories. Not everybody is perfect. In fact, there's only one perfect person in the Bible, that's Jesus. Everybody else is flawed, just like we are. And so I love seeing and reading those stories and rereading them and just extracting some lessons from them that can make a difference in my life and hopefully uh, in the lives of you guys as well. And this morning, I want us to take a look at a story in the life of a guy named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He was actually part of the inner circle of three disciples, Peter, James, and John. They were the closest followers of Jesus when Jesus was uh, living here on the earth. And Peter's a guy that I can relate to because he's kind of a, an open mouth, insert foot, and later on engage mind kind of a guy. He always has something to say. It's not always appropriate. Sometimes it's almost comical. And actually, when I get to heaven, I want to ask you know, some of the, the writers of Scripture, did you intend that particular you know, incident to be funny? Because I laughed when I read, you know, once in a while you've got that. And Peter is a guy who can provide some of that. He also provides some tragedy as you look at different situations in his life, and you're kind of like, yeah, you know, if I'd been there, I might have done that as well. And today I want us to look at a story that, unfortunately, I would say for myself, if I had been there with Peter, I might have done exactly the same sort of thing that Peter had done. And, and the scene is Thursday night, the night before Jesus was crucified. So Good Friday is going to be the next day. Jesus is going to be crucified then. He's going to rise from the dead on Easter Sunday, but Peter doesn't know any of this is going to happen. So Thursday night, they're having dinner, Jesus and his disciples, they're having their last meal together. As they're talking, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples, goes out, he goes off to the religious authorities, and he's betraying Jesus to the religious authorities. After dinner, Jesus and his disciples, the remaining 11 disciples, go out to the Mount of Olives. They end up hanging out in a garden for a, for a period of time, and then Judas and the soldiers come to have Jesus arrested. And I want to pick up the scene there in Mark chapter 14 and verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law came together. So this is like all of the Jewish religious leaders. They're coming together. Peter follows Jesus at a distance 
right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And Mark goes on and he talks about Jesus' trial in front of the religious authorities. And he talks about a situation that was happening with Peter downstairs in the courtyard. And that's where we're going to focus at least at first. And we'll come back to Jesus' trial before the religious authorities. But as I was reading this some years ago, I was kind of struck by the fact that Mark, the author of this gospel or this biography of Jesus, Mark interweaves these two stories of Jesus and Peter. So he, go, he starts off by talking about how they brought Jesus before the religious authorities. Then he talks about Peter being downstairs outside in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. Then he talks about Jesus' trial before the religious authorities. And then he talks about this situation that happened with Peter. I'm like, what's the whole deal with this interweaving thing going on here? And one thing you got to know about me is I, I was an engineer in a previous life, okay? So that's my background. I celebrated Pi Day yesterday, a lot of fun. Some of you are kind of like, okay, we knew this guy was a nerd, but whatever, you know. And it was, hey, it was a nice thing, and I hope that the rest of you did as well. But I'm looking at this, and I'm like, why this interweaving? And those of you who have you know, a literary English literature background or whatever, like, well, it's obvious to us, but it wasn't to me until I spent some time figuring it out. What's going on here is Mark, the author of this biography, is trying to say that these two incidents were happening at the same time. Jesus is upstairs on trial before the Jewish religious authorities, and Peter is actually downstairs, and I would say he's on trial, even though it's unofficial, before this servant girl, because we're going to read what happens here. And, and so what uh, Mark is doing is juxtaposing these two scenes to try to say to us, these are happening at the same time. And we're going to compare and contrast these two. So continuing then with Peter's scene downstairs in the courtyard. Peter's below in the courtyard, verse 66, and one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. He said, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, hey, this fellow's one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you're one of them for you're a Galilean because he, he probably had an accent that made it clear that he was from this particular section of Israel called Galilee. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man whom you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered that the word, the word that Jesus had spoken to him before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. You know, if you step back for a second, you think about it, you, you, this shouldn't have been a surprise to Peter. He knew it was coming because earlier that evening, Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Before tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no way. Even if everybody else does, even if everybody else falls away, I'm not going to deny you. And Jesus said, yeah, you are. I mean, so it's a servant girl. And in that society, never mind today, in that society, what in the world was Peter doing being afraid of this servant girl? Who's going to believe her? versus him, or at least this is what he should have been 
should have been thinking in this this situation. Peter just reacted. He's scared. He opened his mouth. He inserted his foot. He said, I don't know. I don't know who Jesus is. And he did that three times. And for a few minutes, it seemed like it had worked. Because I'd like to think that finally they left him alone. But then he hears the rooster crow. And he just like he buries his face in his hands. What did I just do? The, 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 the man who has shown me incredible love, the one who has served me in so many different ways, the one whom I have dedicated the last three or more years of my life to following, I've just said, I don't know him. And Peter is just crushed. He's devastated by what's happened here. And you know, we're sitting here 2,000 years later and we're looking back at this and it's easy to be critical of Peter because again, you're like, what's he doing? Why is he afraid of this servant girl? Why doesn't he just say, yes, I was with Jesus? You know, but I don't know, if you stop and you think about it, how many of us have been in a situation where we've been afraid to identify ourselves as followers of Jesus? We've been afraid to say that we're Christians. Tomorrow morning, right, you go into work. Somebody says to you, what did you do this past weekend? And you tell them about the movie you saw. You tell them about the, you know, the shopping you did. You tell them about the time that you spent with your family. But you conveniently leave out the hour that you spent on Sunday morning at church. Why? Because you know that person's maybe an atheist or an agnostic. They were making fun of, of Christians the other day. And you, don't, you just don't, don't want to have to deal with that. Are you denying Jesus in the same way that Peter did? I don't know. We could have an interesting discussion about that. But the fact that you're avoiding telling somebody, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus. I go to church. I believe in what the Bible says. You know, that's why I can relate to Peter in situations like that. Or there are other situations. Maybe it's not an issue of denying whether or not you're a Christian, whether you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe there's an opportunity to do good, to be kind to someone who's been a little bit ostracized, whether you're a student and it's a person in school, or again, whether it's that person at work who everybody tends to avoid, and you know that she just needs a friend, but you don't want to associate with her for fear that others are going to look at you and shun you the way that they're shunning her. Or you've got an opportunity to do good in some other way. Or whatever it is, there are so many situations throughout our lives when we know what the right thing to do is, and yet we choose not to do that. Peter knew what the right thing to do was, but he got scared, and he chose not to do it. And I can relate to that, because that happens to me, and I think it happens to, probably happens to all of us, in various, different, in various different situations. In the heat of the moment, we make a choice. We know it's the wrong choice, but we still make that choice, and we end up regretting it. So as I mentioned earlier, Peter's on trial, unofficially, downstairs before the servant girl. Same time, Jesus is upstairs on trial, official trial, before the Jewish religious authorities. Jesus is on trial for his life there, and the situation is not exactly the same as Peter's, but Mark wants us to see and compare and contrast what's going on here. So let's take a look at what was going on with Jesus. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, that's a group of uh, the religious elders, the religious leaders. The chief priests, the whole Sanhedrin, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. 
Many testified falsely against him, but their statements didn't agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony didn't agree. And if you were with us this past fall, we looked at a situation early uh, in Jesus' ministry where he had this run-in with the Jewish religious authorities, and there was some discussion about the temple. And he said, you're going to destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it. And the, uh, the gospel writer John said what Jesus was talking about was, you are going to destroy this temple, meaning my body, Jesus' body, and in three days, I'm going to rebuild it, meaning I'm going to rise from the dead. But they took what he said, they twisted it, and they made it as if he were speaking against the physical temple. And it's kind of like today, if you threaten that you're going to blow up the White House, that's viewed as treasonous, and you're going to be in a heap of trouble. Same situation back then. You threaten the temple, and you're going to be in big trouble. So they're trying to trump up these charges against Jesus saying that he was speaking against the temple, but they couldn't get their stories straight, so they didn't have this evidence to convict him. So then the high priest stood up before them, and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, he said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. From their perspective, Jesus is claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the one who's going to come back and judge them. And from their perspective, this is blasphemy because they see him as being a mere man and he's claiming to be God. And so they say, that's it. We've got the testimony we need. The high priest tore his clothes, which is what he should have done when he hears what he thinks is blasphemy. He tears his clothes. He says, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. Some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and they said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And the next day, Jesus is crucified. And if that's all that we knew, if that's where we stopped, and for some of us, you've never read further in the Bible. You've never heard more than this. And so you're actually at an advantage in trying to, trying to just feel what would it have been like if you were living that situation then. Peter didn't know what was going to happen next. Jesus did because he's God. But nobody else knew exactly what was going to happen next. And if you look at their situations, Peter's and Jesus, which one at this point in the story seems to be better off? You're going to vote with Peter. Yeah, he lied. Yes, he denied Jesus. And yes, he regretted it, but at least he saved his skin. Jesus, on the other hand, is going to end up getting crucified. So if you had to choose between the two, a lot of us would choose where Peter was because at least he, it seems, had ended up saving his life. But there's something that's going on a little bit deeper, a little bit behind the dialogue here in what Jesus was saying and the interaction that he was having with the Jewish religious leaders. And I want you to see that because as I was looking this, at, at this, it's just amazing at the depth 
of what's going on with Jesus, that there's so much more than meets the eye. Back in verse 60, the high priest stands up before them and says to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What's this testimony they're bringing against you? And Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. The high priest says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And if Jesus had simply said nothing, just kept his mouth shut, invoked the first century, first century equivalent of our Fifth Amendment, they could not have convicted him because they had tried. They brought all these false witnesses in and they couldn't even get their story straight. They had absolutely nothing against him. Why? He hadn't done anything wrong. He was sinless. So they didn't have anything that they could get. They couldn't even get him on a misdemeanor, never mind a capital crime, which is what they were trying to do. So if he had just kept his mouth shut, he wouldn't have been killed. But if he'd done that, he would have failed in the mission that he was trying to accomplish. So Jesus responds and he says, I am. I am. And he's quoting there from the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the story of the Exodus, either from reading it in the Bible or watching one of the many movies that have been made about Israel's leaving uh, the, the, the country of Egypt where they had been enslaved for 400 years, you know that there was a time when Moses, who led them out of Egypt, was wandering around in the desert and he saw this burning bush. And God spoke to him in the burning bush and said, Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people your people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses is a little scared. He's not exactly sure what to do. And he says, so when I go to them and say that God has appeared to me and told me to lead you out of slavery in Egypt, who am I going to say? Which God are you? Who am I going to say sent me? And God responds and says, I am who I am. I am who I am. I'm the eternal present. I have been in existence from eternity past. I'm going to exist into eternity future. That's who I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, they hear him equating himself with the God who appeared to Moses in the Old Testament. And then he goes on. He says, you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. He's alluding back to the book of Daniel, one of the prophets in the Old Testament named Daniel, chapter 7. And th you're talking about the Jewish religious leaders here. They're going to know exactly what Jesus is talking about. So he's alluding back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of one who looks like a son of man, meaning he looks like a human being. He comes before God and he's given authority to judge the world. And so what Jesus is essentially saying is, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am your God, and I'm going to come back and judge you. You think you're sitting in judgment over me? I'm going to come back and judge you. And from their perspective, that's blasphemy, and that ends up being the evidence that they need in order to convict him and to sentence him to death. And so when you think about that, you've you got to ask the question, why, why in the world would Jesus do this? We get why Peter lied, right? We get that. But why didn't Jesus just keep his mouth shut? He didn't even have to lie, and he would have been set free. Why would he do this? And I think the reason is because he was thinking of our needs, not his own. Peter was thinking about Peter's needs. Jesus was also thinking about Peter's needs.
Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for Peter, the one who at the same time was denying him. Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for me, who have at times avoided indicating that I'm a follower of Jesus. He sacrificed himself for us, who time and time and time again choose not to do what we know is right or choose to do what we know is wrong. He sacrificed himself for our sins. He died so that we could live. He gave his life for us. Why? Because he loves us, because he's that kind of a God. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, God's incredible one-way love. Peter did nothing to deserve Jesus to sacrifice himself for him. I've done nothing to deserve Jesus to sacrifice himself for me. You, we all have done nothing to earn and deserve his love, yet he shows it to us because that's the kind of God whom he is. And so he dies to forgive our sins, and three days later, he rises again, which is proof that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And as a result of Jesus' death, we can have new life. We can have a restored relationship with God. We can have the peace that even if we do what Peter did, we can still be forgiven. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. Sometime later, after Jesus had risen from the dead, at least a week, maybe two or three weeks later, Jesus and his disciples, the remaining 11 disciples, they're hanging out on a beach having breakfast. And Jesus calls over to Peter and he says, hey, let's talk. And he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, Lord, that I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? Peter's like, yeah, I love you. And Jesus says, Peter, you sure you love me? Peter's like, you know that I love you. Three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus encourages him to affirm his love for him. Jesus is forgiving Peter for his denial of Jesus. Why? Did Peter deserve it? Absolutely not. But because Jesus loved him in the same way that he loves us. He sacrificed himself for us because he loves us. His death is the foundation of the forgiveness that we can enjoy, the forgiveness that Peter enjoyed, and the foundation of our transformed lives. You know, it's interesting to, to, to think about this. Peter went from being the one who had denied Jesus to one of the key leaders in the early Christian church because Jesus commissioned Peter and he said, Peter, I want you to go out and feed my sheep. I want you to tend for my lambs. I want you to care for my flock. He's using a metaphor there saying, I want you to care for your fellow followers of Christ. And Peter ended up being one of the key leaders in the early Christian church. He ended up writing two letters that were included in the New Testament. We call them books or epistles in the New Testament. And Peter ended up writing those. But what's really cool is if you stop and you think about it, Mark, who wrote this biography of Jesus that we've been reading this morning, Mark was not one of Jesus' disciples. He wasn't one of Jesus' followers when he was on the earth. And we actually have no reason to believe that Mark even actually met Jesus when Jesus was on the earth. So Mark had to get his information about Jesus' life and about this story with Peter. He had to get it from somewhere. And most scholars think that Mark got the story, that he got the information that he had, that he got it from Peter. 
And if that's true, you know what that means? Peter's the one who told Mark about his failure, about his denying Jesus. How is it that Peter would be willing to share the story of his failure with Mark, knowing that Mark was probably going to publish this? He probably had no clue that 2,000 years later we were going to be sitting here in Summit and, and reading and talking about this, but he had some idea that others were going to hear about this. How is it that Peter was willing to do that? And I think the answer is because he was so transformed by the love of Christ that he was willing to share his own failings, his own shortcomings, his own, the record of his own denial. He was willing to share that because it magnified the greatness of the grace and the forgiveness and the love that Jesus had shown him. And we get the benefit of reading that now, 2,000 years later. So on a, on a Thursday night, 2,000 years ago, two men were on trial. One wasn't, wasn't really a trial, it was just a servant girl saying, hey, you were with that guy who's upstairs. And that man, in a sense, failed the trial. From his perspective, maybe he passed at least initially, but really from our perspective, no. He denied Jesus and he didn't do what he really ought to do. He chose to lie in order to save himself. The other man who was actually on trial for his life, he chose to sacrifice himself in order to save us. And initially looked like he failed. Looked like Peter succeeded, but Peter really failed. Looked like Jesus failed, but actually he succeeded because that was part of his plan in order to redeem us, in order to rescue us, in order to forgive us from this broken world. And it shows how much Jesus loves us. It shows the incredible love that he has for us. And for some of us, this is a really familiar concept. You've known this story since you were, since you were a little kid. You've heard it a thousand times. You're familiar with all these things. But even though it's familiar, even though it's basic, even though it's simple, it's so foundational because I, we need to come back again and again and again to this life-giving, sacrificial, one-way love that Jesus has for us. For others, this is the first time you've heard this. And my encouragement to you, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, is to take some time and reflect on it. Think about it. Ask yourself if I believed that this were true, if I believed that Jesus really sacrificed himself for me, if I believed that that were true, how would that change my life? How would that change my interactions with other people? How would that affect the way that I live my day-to-day -day life? And it's my hope and it's my prayer that all of us Wherever you are in your spiritual journey, my hope and my prayer is that all of us, as we get closer and closer to Easter, will spend some time really each day stopping and reflecting, thinking about, praying about the incredible love that Jesus showed us when he willingly gave himself for us so that we could live. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that you chose not to save yourself. I, I thank you that you chose to sacrifice yourself for Peter, for me, for all of us. And I pray that whether this is familiar to us or whether it's brand new to us, I pray that we would reflect on it. And as we do, I pray that our hearts and our minds would be transformed. I pray that our love for you would grow. And I pray that as we are transformed, I pray that others would see that in us and would be drawn to you. And I pray that you would be given all the glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.